0: You're listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Uh, today, we are super excited to get to talk to Rachel Ansell. Did I say your name right, Rachel?
0: Yes. Yes, you did.
1: All right. Great. Um, yeah. Rachel, uh, tell us. How did you get into gaming? What's your story?
0: Yeah. Uh, first, I want to say thank you so much for for hosting me on this podcast. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Um, yeah, getting into gaming. So I um, I actually have a degree in fine art. Um, I have a bachelor's of fine art in sculpture. Um, and uh, for a little while, I thought I wanted to get into video game art. You know, it's it's really great stuff. Um, and I. Knew, I was in Massachusetts and I knew that there was a mobile game um, studio near me. I mean, there are a few studios, but, but one near me uh, called Disruptor Beam. Um, and they had it, had a kind of a, an open call for interns for art interns uh, slash general purpose. Um, and I uh, applied and after a, a few interviews um, I very very luckily got it it was for a star (laughs) trek game i actually i remember this i i almost didn't get it i um i remember they i was not the like number one front runner or someone else but um you guys know what pax is the penny arcade expo stuff um you know i went and they had a booth there and myself and a few other people i'm sure were uh trying to you know have some face time with with some of the the people there to kind of get a little ahead in the running of of the internship position and um, myself included. But I remember hearing later on that their front runner went there and was talking about how excited he was to work on the star Wars game. And when they said, (laughs) Oh no, it's a star Trek game. He was then like very put off and was like, Oh, I'm not, I don't like that nearly as much. And uh, I was like Star Trek, great. You know, I've only seen a little bit of some of Star Trek, but I'm into it. I'll watch as much as you want. I don't care. I'll do it. And so, uh, so I got it. And uh, you know, I'm very grateful for that because that has been the the start of my whole career.
1: So, have you become a Trekkie over the course of working on a Star Trek game?
0: Um, to be quite honest, absolutely, yeah, <laughs> I did. Um, my internship was a lot of just watching Star Trek and like making screenshots and notes to like make this compendium of, of artifacts for their game to use. Um, so I watch a lot of Star Trek uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. And it was with a team. Almost everybody on the team was like a self-appointed Trekkie already. So going into work, people were just talking Star Trek all the time, even if it wasn't technically work related. And that that like excitement and engagement in the brand um was was very enticing. And it very much drew me in. So yeah, I um I became a Trekkie uh which served me while I worked on that game for <laughs> Four-ish years, four-ish years, maybe maybe more than that. Um, and I still am. I actually, I actually still kind of miss it. Like, I I love working on um, my the the Disney game that I work on. I'm very grateful for that. But I kind of miss going to the office and um, having just people constantly be talking about the brand or this the Star Trek the thing that we're, yep. we're working on. So. <laughs> yep, <laughs> long answer, but yes, I am.
1: That's that's fun. Yeah, Great. and so while you were there, you kind of uh, eventually got into kind of a producer type role. Yes. Right? So how did your, you know, role kind of evolve as you were working at Disruptor Beam?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, like I mentioned, at first I was an art intern slash, you know, general like intern. Um, and I, I realized through working some of, with some of the artists there um, and realizing, you know, uh, what kind of constraints are needed to be a, like a real artist as a job. Um, and I was like, Oh, this is not what I want to do. You know, like I, I want to be able to make whatever art I want when I want to, which is definitely not conducive to, you know, a full-time work. Mm -hmm. Um, in that field. But to be quite honest, I also kind of had an inkling in the back of my head. I don't think I'm good enough for this, like to be a, (laughs) be a game artist. You to be so, so talented. And, uh, but I I got to know more about how games are made in general. You know, when I was in college, when this is happening, um, you know, this is my first really turn, like drawing back the curtains, like, Oh, I see exactly how video games are made, especially mobile games. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there is a whole component that's needed that is, um, very social and very, you know, high um, executive functioning, you know, um, organizational um, things that like, I I wouldn't have guessed just looking at a game that you'd need people like that, um, you know, when I was 20. But I realized like, wow, that really fits well with uh, my kind of baseline talents and personality. And so I, I started helping the production team until I became an important member of the production team. Uh, so that, when it came for, okay, if my internship's going to either get cut or, you know, like my coming to a close and trying to make that go into a (laughs) full-time position, you know, I, I had my eye on the prize. I was like, you know, art school's great, but it's taught me that I want a salary and benefits. (laughs) (laughs) I want full-time work and, um, and doing production is really, really fun. So, uh, I, I wiggled my way in there until they're like, oh, we, we, probably need her to keep doing the thing that she's been doing every day so that (laughs) we don't have to do that anymore, but it needs to get done. Yeah. (laughs) yeah,
1: That's awesome. Yeah. I might make you have to, you know, show me some of your sculptures sometime. I, I completely failed. We had this like pottery wheel session in, uh, in, high school art. Yeah. And I could not get that six inch pot. Like no matter how much clay I put on there, it would always come up with just like three inches. It was just not, <laughs> not great.
0: <laughs> for, for what it's worth. I also cannot do any ceramics on a wheel. I would have, the, <laughs> I like, the, like talking about like six inches versus three inches. Like it would be wonky. Like I, <laughs> it would collapse. I, I can't do that. So for what it's worth, I think that like throwing a wheel in ceramics is really hard. Um, it's definitely a lot harder than what I can do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All that that's... motion, you know, I'm like, I'm building up from like a, a, a base. Um, mm-hmm. And I did welding too. I did like uh larger than life um, steel figural sculptures. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Not a lot of application in a video game. <laughs> <Yeah.
1: laughs> I don't know, you know, you might be able to make a simulation game or something.
0: <laughs> yeah. Cool.
1: So yeah, so speaking welding of simulation. games, what games are you playing right now? Like what's, what's currently, you know, occupying your time?
0: Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of time to occupy right now with, uh, with the pandemic and everything. So, um, there are, I mean, there are quite a few, but to, to pick some out is, I mean, I know it's a few years old at this point, but Pokemon go, I, I jumped back into the Pokemon go scene when i moved to madison and i was back in like a city um and that's been really fun um it's you know keeps you moving which is good because everyone needs some to breathe some outside air every every now and then yeah um and then i just restarted playing breath of the wild it's a classic Uh you know i just i love picking stuff up off the ground i love being like yes give me all these shiny objects um I, so some like some older games i know that like uh cyberpunk just came out i haven't played <laughs> that yet um i'm waiting for people to like really like i'm waiting for my colleagues to really play it and like tell me how it is before <laughs> i invest <laughs> so yeah, much for that game i need
1: someone to kick me in the butt like breath of the wild like i've i beat all four of the things and then i was like well i don't want to quite finish the game yet yeah and then i kind of set it down and i haven't actually gone back and finished the game and so I need it's to get on it. that, you know. Oh yeah, it's
0: worth it. Yeah, the the whole did you did you get to the like the castle part where you go into Hyrule Castle?
1: Just kind of like I got there and I was like, hold on, I need to like go do all the other puzzles and like get more yeah. powerful and stuff before I do this. So I'm like right at that point though.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you don't need to get more powerful. That, like, the Hyrule <laughs> Castle is like a whole sectional puzzle of its own. That's that's worth doing. Um, But yeah, you don't really have to be Ganon at the end. I mean, it's just, <laughs> unless you want like the end cutscene, but you can just YouTube that. Whatever. I'm not a completionist. Can you tell? <laughs> you no, know, give or take, whatever you want to do.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. So for people that aren't super familiar or that are kind of like new to the industry. So we talked a little bit about this idea of a producer, but like, can you lay it out to me? Like, what does a producer do, like from yeah. day to day? Like, what sort of responsibilities? Why is a producer important to have on the team?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And to be quite honest, this is a question that a lot of people within the industry ask themselves <laughs> and their companies as well. And there are some companies who are—I mean, I don't want to say anti-producer; it's not the exact mentality. But um, you know, I'm pretty sure um, you know Valve is famous for not having producers. I would say. A producer, I mean, uh, there are some quintessential like phrases that I usually throw out there, especially for, for people who aren't necessarily um, familiar with the industry, but they're kind of two things. One is the producer is like if if, if every like there's engineering and art and design, etc. are like bricks in a wall of like people making things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the producer is the mortar that goes in between that sticks it all together that makes that makes each of those really important bricks like the structure that is the wall and then the the second point about producers that um i hear over and over again which i do agree with often is a lot of the times if your producer is doing a really good job you'll have no idea what they're doing and you'll <sighs> you'll know you have a bad producer because it becomes very obvious very fast, um, and kind of what I mean by that that kind of goes together with the the brick and mortar um, analogy is that producers make it so people who are doing like the development, the design, the art, etc. that mostly or all they have to focus on is doing their work. You know, there are hundreds of other little things that go on for making games um, at any given point in time. And you don't want your engineers, uh, et cetera, to be worrying about all these little things and, you know, Mm -hmm. hoping that things don't fall through the cracks. Like a producer is there to kind of catch a lot of miscellaneous stuff. Not that they only do miscellaneous things, but, you know, a producer... Also, it depends, to be quite honest, on, on how your team is structured. Like, if there's a product owner, sometimes the product owner and a producer can be one person. Like, that's my role right now um, at Per Blue. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think generally, usually a producer and a product owner are different people where, you know, the product owner says, or the product manager game, you know, the, the person who, who runs the game uh, on a high level, you know, makes the decisions and they say they look at the KPIs and say this is what needs to get solved. And then they essentially hand that to the producer and the producer says, OK, this is how we're going to execute it. And they the producer works with the team on the plan of like, OK, if we need to hit this date for this feature, you know, is it possible how much of the feature can we do in that time period can we do all of it uh, can we only do you know half of it um, if the product owner wants us to do this feature and then also we need all these bug fixes and we need all this tooling done for internally to the team, either QA tooling or, you know, community tooling, um, you know, what can, what can we feasibly get done in the time that we have? And then the, it's the producer's job to work with the team to figure that out and mm-hmm. then uh, bring that to the product owner and say, okay, you can't have, everything that you want which is very common because the product owner's <laughs> job is to want 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 want. you know that's how the game drives forward and and continues to be a success yeah. um, the producer says you can have like here are three to five different options of what you want and how you can get different amounts of it um mm. which which one looks best to you you know or this is the one i recommend because um and so there's a lot of like negotiation that happens with the producer and the product owner so that the people doing the work don't have to deal with that. You know, they can make their recommendations and they of course have their input and what they think that we should do, but it's often on the producer then to um, advocate for the team. And part of the Mm -hmm. producer's job is making sure that the team doesn't get burned out, isn't crunching, or if those things do come to pass, like, it's it's uh yeah it's it's like a it's a hard conversation uh, but it's it's technically mm-hmm. it's the producer's job to make sure that they work with the product owner or the execs or you know mm-hmm. depends on the structure of the company yeah, um, cool. so that they shield the team um, from from that kind of mismanagement
1: yeah but no, then on sweet. the
0: other side like making sure that the team is as productive <laughs> as they you know should be um, that they have all their needs met that if there are any blockers to their work that they are taken care of, um, and a lot of that comes into play with um, most game development studios at this point are agile, have agile processes in place. Yep. Um, so things like sprint planning, standups, ups, uh, retros. Um, and I don't know if at this point I should go into like a <laughs> mini what these things are or not, but they are they are pretty integral to making uh, everything go smoothly.
1: Yeah. So is it safe to say you have a lot of conversations with a lot of different people each week?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Most of my job is talking to people. I love it. I'm a very social person. I, it would be It's not impossible, but it would be pretty probably taxing on someone to be a producer and not be like an inherently outgoing person. I've definitely yeah. seen good producers who aren't outgoing, but I've also heard them talk about how taxing <laughs> it is on, on their
1: system. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, uh, a pretty common theme these days in game development is the idea of data-driven game development. So as a producer, uh, how does data, you know, come into anything, especially when you're thinking about like planning features or, hey, we can only have three of these 20 things you want to do. Like, how do you effectively figure out what are the three things that one, the team is capable of doing and is likely to have the best outcome for the game?
0: right absolutely so it sometimes depends on the role of the producer on that particular team some producers like when i was a younger producer you know just less experienced um i wouldn't really understand many like a lot of what goes on behind like the data so i would that would be up to the product owner or product managers to give that input of what's going to be the most impactful and that would be threaded into then the recommendation uh but now that you know i have more experience and i think more experienced producers are more likely to be able to take this part on too is a lot of times that kind of the data driven part i know that's kind of like a, a buzz <laughs> phase, but often that at least in my experience happens um, way before a lot of like the planning with the team of what they can take on Um, that goes into like the high level. What are the issues that the players are facing right now? Like what key metrics are slipping that we need to shore up. And then it becomes um, a question of on design to pitch, like, hey, can you pitch a few ideas that you think would solve this issue? Um, And then when we get to that pitch phase, we like high level, we'll get engineers in to do um, really rough estimates. Often they aren't even like days, they're like what we call (laughs) t-shirt sizes. This is an extra large t-shirt size, (laughs) size, you know? and then, and then that will, and then, so the, the kind of the planning of what can we do in these slots, you know, starts really early. So usually by the time it's like planning with the team of, okay, what can we reasonably put in this two week period, which is usually what sprints are two weeks cycle, yep. mm-hmm. um, you know, or four weeks um, by that time there has been so much discussion already, um, you know, high level of what we want to accomplish um, and some kind of already forward estimations that at that point, you know, there's a list that's longer than we can take on, but it's all been like approved by the PO of like, yep, just take anything from this list, it'll be good enough. Or at least as long as we, you know, um, commit to the tent feature And we break that down and it looks okay. Then just like, you know, a myriad of whatever else you can fit in for quality of life (laughs) with this list of 10 or 20 things. Yeah. Is good to me. Yeah.
1: That's cool. Do you feel like the the producing role is a little bit different for a, uh, depending on the stage of your game, like uh, a live game, a soft launch game, or a, you know, just under development type game?
0: Yeah, definitely. I have mostly specialized in live ops games, like games that are already already live and kind of chugging. But I've also been on games from, you know, kind of inception through to soft launch, through to global launch. And the differences are pretty big. One of the things I really love about games that are in LiveOps is that you have players giving you feedback and not just mm-hmm. the verbal feedback, you know, if you have forums or social media um, or, or player tickets, but it's that KPI, the, the key metric feedback of mm-hmm. you can tell when something's not going too well, or you can tell when something's going really well and you're like, why is it going so well? We should do more of that. Um, and when you're in pre-production or you're before live, um, you know before soft launch even the only thing that's really guiding you is what the market looks like currently what you can gauge from uh, other games you know competitor games um, you know whatever data you can find on app Annie or, or you know myriad of other uh, websites. Uh, or if you're lucky enough that your studio has a few games that have been live or are currently live, especially if they're in the same ish genre, you know, gleaning from from their successes and failures. Um, so it's all kind of up to the internal team to figure out what's going to be a success. <laughs> and so it's I mean, to me, it's both like you can become way more creative, you know, it's a little bit more blue sky, a little bit more like, wow, what's the cool new thing that our game is really going to bring and freshen up the market. Um, but it's also higher risk, uh, cause you, you don't have that immediate feedback with players. You're just kind of shot in the dark and you're going to make this thing mm-hmm. and hope it goes well. Um, once you're in soft launch, you start to get that player feedback, which is super valuable. Um, which is which is when yeah those gears start turning as if you're as if you're a fully live product but um yeah being being in production in pre global launch and especially pre soft launch can be very difficult to do the negotiation of like what are we going to build in the time we have with the product owner because you have so f- like less or fewer whatever's grammatically correct there um data points to say we think this is safer or we think this is going to be more successful. And therefore this is going to, we want to do this instead. It's like, how many shots can we take? Um, mm. so that we, we can hopefully make a, the most successful game that we can.
1: Yeah. What is the ultimate KPI? Like if you had to pick one to track, yeah. which one would it be and why yeah,
0: um, LTV lifetime value? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, ultimately it's, it's how much money are your players spending in your game and how much money are people is people racking up over, over their time in the game. And then, you know, keeping track of those players and if they've churned or not, um, making sure that players spend money and then they're retaining, you know, so that they're continuing to spend money and continuing to be engaged in your game. Um, players, I mean, de- it depends on the kind of game you're making. So I, I don't want to make too broad a statement, but but it, in my experience, at least, especially in like the RPG genre and the strategy genre, genres, that you're going to have a lot more success out of players who are really invested in your game and, you know, mm-hmm. continue to spend money over periods of time than players who just come in, spend a dollar and then leave. Though, of course, there are lots of use for that as well. Um, but... Yeah. Creating that like healthy community of people who are engaged and spending is, yeah. is really, really important.
1: Yeah. It's close. I've, I've heard, uh, others argue that uh, payer reconversion is an even more important metric than LTV, but in, in many ways I could say that they kind of tie together, but the idea behind theirs is that well, in order for you to get a payer reconversion, you still have to have the players retained and spending has to be so much fun and like, you know, so good that like, I'm going to do it again and again yeah. and, you know, stick around and be invested in the game, basically, yeah. which I think ultimately can contribute to the LTV. So <laughs> LTV is, is definitely a fair one. Yeah. <laughs> I like it.
0: I mean, yeah. They're definitely very close, very related. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I can't argue with that either, you know, it's <laughs> make spending so fun that you're going to come back and read and, and keep doing it. You know, even if you like leave the game for a few weeks, usually if a player has been gone for a week, especially two weeks, you know, the chances of them coming back are very low. (laughs) So, yeah, if it's if they come back after that and then spend again. And it's really funny. As you said that I was like doing mental inventory. I was like, I did that in Pokemon Go. (laughs) (laughs) I am. I am one of their data points for that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. Yep. Okay. Here's a fun question. Great. So you can wear your game lead hat or your producer hat for this. Yeah. But let's say um, someone on your live ops team, your monetization team kind of comes to you and says, Hey, we've got this, you know, big problem. We need to do like a client fix today. Yeah. What questions would you ask to actually dig in to figure out, like, is this actually a problem? And like, do we need to do something about it?
0: Yeah. So I think. First and foremost, I would get an engineer involved and I would say, hey, is this actually a client fix? You know, uh, uh, depends on the team, but like my live ops people, like I, I'm not sure they could definitively say 100% um, if the thing that they needed was actually a client side fix. Uh, because if we can fix it with a stat update or a server update, then yeah, let's do it today. Sure, <laughs> if this is something you want, I'm not going to ask more questions if it's, if it's a server or a stat update, that's easy. Um, if they want a, a client update, you know, I mean, one thing I would ask is, you know, what is the issue that's happening um, if I don't know it already, you know, um, and that would unveil, I think, uh, many different, it depends on, you know, what then they they come out from that. Um, but another, like, baseline question I would have is, like, does it really have to be fixed today? Can this wait until the next Planned client update we do client updates every three weeks so mm-hmm. you know it's it's not they're not that far apart uh if something is is truly broken you know if they're like you know we're losing data on payers and it's not coming through and we don't know if people are spending money or not right now like that's obviously a really really important issue um, yeah. so then i would go to qa and i would say okay qa what's your bandwidth like can you can you fit like doing the testing for this client and submission? Like submission takes, even if it's like a small submission like this uh, with builds and everything, and it is, and, you know, engineering comes back says yes, this is a client update um, that can take easily half a day just to do the submission testing. uh, Because even if you're only updating this small thing um, you're updating the whole client. And every time you do a new build, that's a chance for things to go wrong in the build, even if there's only one thing in it. Um, so yeah, it, a lot of it depends on like what, what the thing is that is wrong. Like once they answer that, um, and if it does seem to really be a critical issue, if we need it and if my live team says we got to have this, you know, I usually trust my team's expertise. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, yeah. Then it comes down to like, okay, what else is happening in the huge cog of the machine, uh, cogs of the machine that is the, you know, making games happen, um, and see who has time for what and what we can fit in. Uh, but to be quite honest, oh yeah. And then the other, the other, the other question is, is it, is it all platforms? You know, is it just Google, mm-hmm. Amazon, um, Samsung? Is an Apple because the big the big deal here is that you can never do a same day client update with Apple almost ever because you submit it and then they can take several days to review it and then approve. Um, so then it becomes like very tactical <laughs> question of um, releasing the fix on which platforms in what you know what amount of time. Google you can have things out immediately. Amazon and Samsung similar to Apple have. Um, several day turnarounds for client submission review. So um, like another question I would ask is if it really needs the the real client update, um, but we like, we're, we're losing all data on our payers right now. We can't wait, you know, three days mm-hmm. to get that back. It's, is there a bandaid fix we can do that's like really sloppy and risky on the server stat side to get that data back at least a little bit right now as we, as we wait for those clients. Mm. Yeah.
1: So I have, I have two follow-up questions. So my first one, which could be a quick one, is it actually worth it to deploy on Samsung and Amazon? You know, a lot of games are just focusing on Google and Apple, but do you think other stores are worth it at all?
0: Um. It kind of depends. I mean, it depends on like the metrics that your game is getting from those platforms. If it's an easy extra few thousand dollars a day, you know, in the same way that like you can get from, from ads. It's like, it's like asking the question of like, I mean, depending on the kind of game you have, but you know, is it worth it to put a bunch of ads in the game? You know, if you're only going to get a few thousand dollars, like at most, maybe like $15,000 a day from it you know, at most, Uh, but more likely it's like $1,000, $3,000, you know, somewhere more in that range, even if you're a pretty successful game, then, you know, it's like, yeah, it is worth it. Um, There are a lot of different levers and knobs that you can use. Like, you know, if Amazon and Samsung don't get approved clients as fast as Apple and Google do, and your release is on scheduled to be Wednesday, you know, and you get Apple approved by then and Samsung and Amazon haven't, you don't have to wait for them. You know, you can release and just have a game that's down for those players. You know, it's not that many players, um, for, from that day. It's not a best practice. It's not a great experience for those players, but you know, if it's between waiting for the update for, 95, 99% of your player base where, you know, they're waiting for that update in order to spend money because that's, you know, how that cycle works, you know, waiting an extra day or maybe two or maybe three versus like shutting out a small handful of people, you know? So like, there's, there's weighing that you can do depending on if like there are issues that come up that you have to like balance the needs of Amazon and Samsung versus everyone else. But it's not that much more work, so I mean I I think it's been worth it personally. Yeah.
1: I like it. Okay, so one thing that you said at the beginning of my question, you yeah. know, where you said, "Okay, well, I want to get an engineer to really understand is this actually a client fix?"
0: Yeah.
1: How important do you think it is to be able to change things in the server and like what is your recommended mantra of designing a game such that you do have control in the server versus client? Oh,
0: fixing? yeah. Definitely. So we I 100% this is something that um, we have talked about and walked through in the Disney Heroes game the past you know it's been two plus years that the game has been live so originally almost everything was only configurable on um, the client I mean we we had server and stat you know um, maneuverability but at a certain point um, after clients were releasing and there were like really small bugs that were coming out that felt like, you know, they weren't really worth a client update on their own, but it kind of sucks that they happened. Um, You know, we started having some retros with our engineers and, and our designers and CS and everyone that was like, you know, these could be fixed in a server if we kind of reconfigured how we did certain things or just going forward as we made features or if we ever refreshed older features, we could bake in this time to reconfigure things so that we could have more control over the server. And we did over the past year. You know, we did both of those things um, and we really focused on that um, as we went through and made things. And it's been well worth the effort because um, we very rarely need Hot fix clients now, um, you know, issues will come up from, um, releases as they always do. Bugs always happen. Um, uh, but so many of them are now, <coughs> excuse me, um, fixable from the server and from, from stats that, you know, the, the, the tax that happens with a client update every single time on QA, you know, is, it, it makes them so strapped. And now, you know, that, that time has become microscopic and players get those fixes right away. Um, It's just, it's better for overall, both for the game health and the community, but also definitely for the team health. Yeah. That's
1: awesome. Yeah. So uh, thinking a little bit about feature releases and stuff. So, you know, you mentioned with Disney heroes, you guys release a a client update about every three weeks and such you know, how do you guys approach designing, developing, and releasing new features? Um, something that I've heard more and more has been, um, <clears throat> again, kind of with this data-driven mindset in mind, um, you know, rather than just developing a new feature and releasing it, can we, you know, come up with an idea at, for a feature and hmm. release it as an event, Um you know, get some data back on it, see our players willing to engage in it and stuff. And yeah. you know, okay, if it is, well, let's fix the stuff with the data we have and then release it fully as a feature. Yeah, is that something you've ever done, or you know, do you take a different approach?
0: Yeah, and not that exact thing, but you definitely that mindset. There, I mean, there's two different things here. One is for features, or there's others that's for like a things that like li- our live ops wants to do, um, uh, or or you know, like our yeah, the that kind of team is um, we do. There's definitely a lot of I think experimentation that you can do, um, whether that's A/B testing or if your game has different servers. That you know there there are pros and cons to having multiple servers for a game for sure. Uh, but one of the big pros is you can release an experiment, you know, on one server and then whether that's um, like a live ops live ops experiment or a whole new feature. We definitely do this for all of our n- new large feature development is we release it on um, our server one, which has you know, all of our oldest players on it. You know, It's a large chunk of them have been with us since beta. They really love our game and they'll give us really honest um, and valuable feedback on our, on our features. And um, at this point they have come to expect that they get stuff first so that they can tear it apart. And then we will take that feedback and then we'll do rounds of development with it in that server or i mean it's not always server one but you know in the 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 that one place um uh before we then release it live to everybody and i mean if someone wanted to go and create a new account into that server and then play around with that before their main server had it they of course are free to do that Um, but that way yes it's it's reduces the risk of releasing something that is not going to go over well because um you can never really know until it's in players hands um so yeah yeah definitely like releasing it as you know an event or a one-time thing to then get data on it before rolling it out entirely or deciding hey this is not worth it we're not going to do it you know we always bake in like a like an off switch like a okay we're going to shut this down now if it's like a whole new feature, you know, or or like a redesign of a feature. Um yeah, luckily we haven't I can't think of any time where something's gone so poorly that we've had to like turn it off forever. Um but usually it's because you know we'll we'll just tinker with it until we feel like okay it's 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 good enough and then um or it at least meets the expectations of the business goals or the success metrics that we designed into it, um, that we can then uh, roll it out globally.
1: Yeah. Do you guys always have like a metric or goal that you're going with the feature? Like, you know, do is sometimes it engagement or monetization or like how do you guys you know orient that?
0: Yeah, definitely. So this kind of goes back to I think something we were saying a little earlier or that I mentioned a little excuse me, a little earlier where the data-driven part happens way early in the process of the development of features in the game. And that's, um, you know, it it, kind of can happen one of two ways. One is, you know, my, my designer or my head of live ops will come to me or I'll have an idea, you know, I'm playing the game and I think, okay, this is clearly an issue like players need to solve for this thing or the game is missing x and then they'll they'll pitch to me a, their idea and they'll and but then it'll come up with and this is why we need this because these metrics are suffering and so then if like that kind of sways me or i'm like yeah okay i can i can see that then we go into like the slightly more formalized process of like okay before this is actually assigned out to a designer to to um design uh we come up with the business goals of like okay this is yeah it can be monetization but usually it's not so flat it's like this game just needs to monetize it has to be really targeted because are you monetizing new users are you monetizing old users Are you kind of going back to like, are you trying to, are we trying to re-engage the monetization of players who used to pay and then stopped? You know, Mm -hmm. there are so many little um, sections of players that you can target. And if you target too broadly, you're never going to hit, you're never going to hit your metrics because one feature can't move like a huge needle (laughs) Pretty much at all, um, you know. So it needs to have really tuned expectations of what is this, what is this change trying to solve exactly. Mm-hmm. And usually there are a few different ones, um, and then that will feed into success metrics, um, and and that then feeds into like when the feature is released, um, that we then. That's what we check back in on of, of those of those dials because if we also don't have those dials like pre set in our minds of this is what it's supposed to do then you know I've seen this this happens occasionally is that when we go back to review the release review the features that's you know that's gone out we're like okay how do we know it, it how do we know that it did well how do we know that it succeeded and if we don't have those it's like oh I guess we don't or like I can figure out off the top of my head what I would hope to see. But like, if that wasn't baked into the vision of the design, then, you know, that can be kind of unfair, you know, like, Oh, this didn't succeed because it didn't meet the expectations that I just made up right now after it's in the game. (laughs) Does that make sense?
1: (laughs) No, totally makes sense. And, and, I, I think without those things, it would be near impossible. Uh, you could say, "Well, do do my players respond well to this?" But you're not actually tracking to see, like, is it accomplishing that specific thing that I designed it for?
0: Right, um, right. And you can see, you can have you know false negatives, but you can also have false false positives. You can say, "Well, you know, this metric moved, and that thing had gone out since then. So clearly, <laughs> these two are paired." Um, but you know, that's that is a fallacy. That's <laughs> wrong. Right. You don't actually know. You know, so. But of course, that can come up even if you did try to specifically target that data is so <laughs> great. I mean, data is great, but it's um, yeah, it's it's often not not clear cut. So trying to make it as clear cut as you can possibly make it ahead of time will really <laughs> help your efforts in the long run.
1: Oh yeah. Testing is fun. I remember one time we were running an experiment and just, just for kicks, we were like, let's have a second baseline control group just to see how it was. And, and then we got the results back and the the control group was like down nearly like 10% from our original baseline control group. Oh, no. and, and we were like, okay, well, we got to let this run a lot longer because yeah. even though it seems statistically significant, it's like, we got to get these back, you know, in line with each other. So it's yeah. it's always fun when you see things like that.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: So, uh, Rachel. Yes. Thinking about over your career, mm-hmm. what are some like lessons that you've learned that have just like really impacted you. Like, you know, sometimes when I talk to people about this, they're like, Oh yeah, I had this one thing happen to me and I just, I put that on my checklist. And now every time that happens, like I always come back to that thing because it's never going to happen again. So like, what are some of those things that like, if I'd known when I started my career, this thing, it would have stopped, you know, something big from happening. Like what are those things that other producers should know?
0: Yeah. (laughs) man um so many things um so one is and this is you know it's interesting it's actually um this actually isn't something that I learned at work it's something I learned in art school but I it has really served me well throughout my entire career um that I would love to impart which is uh, I mean, in art school, you learn that like you 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 make art and then um, you put it up for the class to see. And, um, you know, you do these class-wide reviews where people just tear into each other and it's your heart and your soul. That's, it's in the art that you created that people are ripping apart. But the thing that you should take away from it is they're not attacking you personally. They are earnestly trying to help you become better at what you do. And so, you know, from that, it's when someone gives you feedback, it's, and like the first reaction that you should have is, well, A, gratefulness that someone brought this to you, you know, they could have easily not said anything, Um, but B is really, truly like look inside and say, how can I do better at this thing that they have brought to me? Um, or even if it's positive feedback, looking inside again and being like, why is this successful? How can I do, how can I do more of it? It's kind of like mini feature development in your own personhood. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I came from having, you know, no production skills. Like I, I didn't go to, I don't even know if there are, degrees for production. I think there are, I think there are like master's degrees and stuff, but you know, all of my training was on the job and it's, it's so much of like self-awareness of, of just trying to get better at the things that you're doing and, um, helping people, you know, helping other people succeed, you know, is like the core of your job is helping the team succeed, helping each each individual other person succeed in what they do. And if you're like continually focused on that and coming back to that, um, then you'll succeed also. Yeah. So that's, I think like a core thing. Another thing that I think is a little, like a little bit of an antithesis to like a, if you have a good producer, you don't know what they do. I, I, I kind of don't like that in that like i think everybody should be appreciated for the work that they do and i don't think that like producers should be relegated to being invisible uh because it, it always like i, I there's so many conversations that i have not in my current job but like you know on the internet or you know within in gdc etc with other game developers of people who then because our work is often so invisible or like we hide it in a way you know we we never reveal what we're really doing um it's it's not you can't like play with it in the way that you can play with a feature that somebody engineered and had ui ux for and art for um, is that yeah people there are a lot of people who don't understand what the value is um, and i think that their teams and and studios will suffer for that um, and if you don't see the value in it or don't understand the value in it, then you don't know how to value, like evaluate someone who's doing the job, like for an interview, yeah. um, like will they actually be good at this job? Um, so one of the things that I try to do is, you know, I try to call out when I do stuff, you know, and it's not like an egoistic, I'm doing work, but it's like this kind of slight, really subtle, like education of this, this is the thing, like this is the work I'm doing to support the team so that they can have visibility into it so that people understand like, ah, this is, this is the value that's being brought visibly. Um, so that then like when they go to other studios and then they have to interview producers, like they know what they're looking for. And so that someone can't like BS their way into a job because they're really charismatic, but they are actually kind of awful when it comes to like the really important things of being a producer.
1: Yeah. That's great. Those are, those are really great insights. I like that a lot. Okay. So in our last minute, summit, it shift gears just a little bit to think yeah. a little bit about live ops. Yeah. So, um, you know, with your experience running live games, mm-hmm. um, have you been involved in like actually planning live op calendars on like cadences of events and things like that?
0: Yes, yes I have. So what yeah. type
1: of balance of events you know do you try to add in so that you get the right engagement and monetization but you're also not burning out your players because I think you can you know add a bunch of high monetization type events, oh, yeah. but if you do too many too fast, like your players are just burnt oh, yeah. out and get they' super yeah. mad
0: yeah yeah oh definitely there's definitely like a an art to it I would say that um it can definitely depend on the player base you know and the type of game that you're running like if you're running a, a war game that's gonna be very different than if you're running like a hero's charge knockoff uh, RPG yeah I mean it, it that's going to be like one of the most important parts of like if you're just starting up your live ops and your your event running for a game of figuring that out but like if you have someone from another studio who has been on another successful game of a similar type like they can help out so like if I were to you know if I were suddenly found myself I'm in a new studio in a new team um you know and and no one else has made a, you know, a game live for, I don't know, it's probably not gonna happen, this hypothetical situation, but let's just say, you know, um, then, you know, I would first take, you know, what I know, which is, yeah, that, that schedule of being like, okay, you should probably do a monetization event, like, no more than, say, like, once a month, or really, it's like once every four weeks, you know, occasionally, that will mean twice a month, and then, like, intersperse like, have these different engagement types of events or events that that players have um they like more but even if live ops doesn't like it as quite as much you know it's not it's not good for monetization but uh, not even really good for retention necessarily but like there are a lot of vocal players who are like we love this kind of event i don't know why they exist (laughs) but they totally do Um, you know Uh, that they're not like moving any kind of metric. And yet there still still seems to be a very vocal minority who loves it and yeah, getting, getting a schedule going and then seeing how that's going for you. Like if you think you can push your players a little bit more, like a little experimentation can go a long way. Um, you know, if you want to run a monetization events slightly more frequently, but I, I would say like go slow and, um, be very careful still do it. Like, don't like be so careful that you're afraid to, to like touch anything after you first set things up. Cause you don't know, like that could be totally not the numbers you could be getting. Um, but yeah, like you said, if you're just like, well, we want to push them a little more. So we're going to do two in a row. I'm like, "Mm, probably don't do that. Like, you know, um, there, there's going to be trough periods after you squeeze people for money where they're going to be, uh, less willing to, to spend again for a period of time. And then if after that, you, after that, you know, you, you go right back into kind of like squeeze mode, they're going to feel it way harder than the first time. And, and it's going to hit player sentiment, which ultimately hits player retention and, and churn and, and pay rates. Mm-hmm. So like, just do it carefully and slowly. And eventually you will find the right cadence for your game.
1: That makes sense. So for people that are like brand new to live ops, and I know that a lot of games are just starting to get into it amazingly. Um, you know, what does a monetization event, like what could it look like? And maybe like, what could an engagement event look like if, if I'm just trying to wrap my head around, like, what is this thing?
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, most games nowadays have, you know, a few different kinds of currency. Um, some that, you collect for free as you play the game, you know, that's usually like gold. And then some that you accrue much less frequently through the game or not at all. And, you know, the main way you get it is through buying bundles. And that's, let's say diamonds, it's usually gold and diamonds. And, you know, a a monetization feature or not feature, monetization event or like a contest, you know, would look like you... I mean, you have rewards for players, which are different things that you think players are going to want, whether that's, you know, characters or items or, you know, whatever your game does. Um, and you want a main way of getting points in that event, you know, or that that contest is like, I'm going to say contest, you know, a weekend contest, let's say. You want like a main way of spending, I'm sorry, of getting points in that contest to be things like you spend diamonds, you know, you can spend them anywhere in the game. You can be buying chests, you know, you can, it's whatever in your game that you, that is a, is a funnel for uh, this paid currency. Um, And then if they do that, they, they get points and they get more points. And then, then if they are doing, then you want to also have something for the free to play players or just for all players to be able to go into, which is slightly more, you know, um, um, engagement based, but it can be like your, your you know, spend your non-premium currency, you know, your soft currency, your gold, or you can hey, have something that's slightly more, um, like I said, uh, engagement, which is like, hey, um, craft badges. Every badge you craft will get you points, et cetera. But like, you probably won't get quite as many points for those actions as you would for spending your premium currency. Um, but I would also say if you're going to have a monetization event, the rewards have to be better because people are spending a lot more money in these events so the rewards have to match like you have to that has to be juicy enough that players say oh i would spend money or i'm going to spend the stuff i the, the premium currency i hoarded carefully in order you to, to get this reward um so that can be an example of a monetization event and then a an engagement event you know, it's like if we're looking at a contest again, you know, weekend contest, mm-hmm. um, can be something like, you know, yeah. Farm, farm badges, like farm items, um, fight in feature, you know, use, use X feature, you know, however many times, you know, run through this, this grinder, um, you know, collect whatever it's playing the game essentially. And then by playing the game, um, you will get points and then you weight them differently depending on how difficult it is. And usually like, especially if it's something like uh, engagement uh, with like grinding badges or something, usually it's like that, that costs stamina. Like people can't just do it forever because otherwise, you know, that's just like another, uh, I'm not going to get it. That's a whole nother mechanic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to stop myself of like stamina and the stamina economy (laughs) um, and how that directly feeds into monetization as well. But like it does, there is still some like, monetization aspects of these, um, of these events, no matter what they are, um, Mm -hmm. which is how you can, you know, still get money from them, but also it's like, a uh, you're still going to get the, if it's like a free to play, you know, premium economy, um, um, not necessarily pay to win, as like a whole game but um often these events will eventually come down to pay to win and some of them are more hard like the monetization features versus more soft like you could have you can grind your way up to the top it would just take so much more time <laughs> than if you bought a bunch of stamina packs and you know um and and dump those onto the contest
1: yeah yeah that makes sense that's great well Rachel. <laughs> I would love to keep going, but we are almost out of time, so I might right. have to. I might have to have you come back. Maybe we can talk about uh, game economy design or something sometime. But, sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, I have sure. one more official question or unofficial sure. question that I always like to ask, which is, uh, what is one tip that you have to boost retention in a game?
0: One tip to boost retention in a game. So this this comes from my. You know, the, the live ops background or when I and when I say live ops, I mean, you know, games that are already live, you know, so it's it's boost retention. So players are already in the game. And that would be to like, you know, in a little bit of a way, like ask your players like some really pointed questions about what they want figure out what their problem is based on what they're directly telling you. And some of it could be exactly like out of the box, what they say, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's like, Oh, you want this thing, but really this is your issue. And I have a better solution for that. Um, And, and then do that thing that they're asking you for. And then you can come around and say, we're listening to you and players who feel like the game team cares about the player base and they're not just there to squeeze them for money and they 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 care about the players and they they want to make a game that um players are happy to come into every day um you'll you'll get better retention you'll get players who then feel appreciated and then have those warm fuzzy feelings of we're a community and then that will that will pay into itself
1: that's amazing i love that one a lot that's great. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for being on today. Uh, really can't wait for, for people to get to hear this. And I, I can't thank you enough and look forward to talking to you soon.
0: Awesome. Thank you again so much for having me. This is really fun. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> All right. Bye. All
0: right. Bye.